welcome to Your Career Podcast. If you're looking for inspiration in your career or job search, you're at the right place. I'm Jane Jackson, your career management coach and author of Navigating Career Crossroads. For more career advice and support, go to janejacksoncoach.com and find all you need to create the career of your dreams. Welcome to Jane Jackson Careers, a podcast that takes your career to the next level. Here's your host, Jane Jackson, author of Amazon Careers bestseller, Navigating Career Crossroads. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. There are over 180,000 book titles to choose, so give it a go and get your free audiobook today from audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. Welcome back to my careers podcast, where I interview fascinating professionals who've made amazing career changes. Today, I'm honored to introduce to you Esther Mackay, the president of the Police Post Trauma Support Group in Australia, author, keynote speaker and advocate for veterans affairs and social justice. Esther is a retired forensic investigator, best-selling author, and social justice campaigner. She's a passionate and long-standing mental health advocate dedicated to raising awareness and reducing the stigma around mental health issues, improving conditions, and creating better support services. Esther has had a long career in the New South Wales Police Force, where she worked in forensic services before she was medically discharged in 2001 with post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder as a direct result of her forensic work. Despite her diagnosis, Esther has used her experiences to provide education, support and inspiration to help others. She's written two best-selling books, one's called Crime Scene and the other Forensic Investigator, that provides a critical insight into life as a police and crime scene officer, as well as starting a vital conversation about mental health in the emergency services. Esther founded the post, uh, the police post-traumatic support groups within the MacArthur area in New South Wales, and she has worked actively and tirelessly for the past 10 years, supporting and coordinating services to both serving and retired police who suffer from work-based trauma. Esther speaks regularly as a keynote speaker to government departments, universities, schools, and the corporate sector on mental health women's issues, overcoming PTSD, and forensic work, all areas in which she is extremely passionate about. She's the patron of the Missing Persons Register and has served as an Australia Day ambassador for a number of years. And currently, she's working on her third non-fiction book. Now, what a busy lady who's dedicated to helping the community. So let's welcome Esther to the show. And good morning, Esther. 
Good morning, Jane. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And I've been really looking forward to interviewing you for so long since we first met. So I think this is going to be a really, really interesting podcast. So thanks again. And how about to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your early days and your childhood career aspirations. Well, when I was a child, just, you know, interestingly enough, was involved in a bit of media with my mum who set up a local radio station and I was involved right from the very beginning when they had to apply for a licence and campaign to get the funding together and then once it got off the ground I actually did a bit of a recording and after that I went into when I left school I went to work for the local newspaper so again I sort of ended up in media and was there that I was interested in journalism and I then went on to work at the Australian Consultative Press Library and I started to think about maybe going into law or policing and end up joining the New South Wales Police Force. But that whole circle came around from the very beginning when I started off with my journalism to end up being an author. It's amazing the way that your career path has progressed. So what was it that prompted you to go from journalism to joining the police force? I really had a passion for for law. I really would have loved to have gone and done a law degree, but I just didn't have enough marks in my HSC to go through to uni. So it was just in the background all the time. And I just felt that policing was a good, you know, a good avenue for me to do something that I was interested in. And of course, when I joined the police, I didn't know it at the time, but I started to get interested in forensic, the forensic area. And it wasn't long before I moved into that area. So I think with forensic work, there's a lot of long, protracted investigation. So my writing skills were being honed all the time. I was doing a lot of writing, a lot of detail of writing about trace evidence and scenes and what have you. And so I guess the writing ability that I had uh, going back to when I was younger was coming through again in my work in forensic. So that really was a solid grounding. But, you know, when you join the police force, there are so many different areas that your career could take you so that our listeners will understand. When you joined the police force, how did your career progress to get into forensics? After 12 months, you go back to the police academy for your secondary training and they have a whole heap of different sections that come down and explain what those particular areas of policing do. And we had a fellow come down and give us a talk about was called scientific investigation in those days and I just found it absolutely fascinating and I knew from that minute when he was giving that talk about the work that they did that that's what I was going to do and that was the area I was going to move into so I just made that my plan and of course in those days there wasn't many women in the force let alone women going into forensic work there was only I think one or two other women that had gone into that area so it was very difficult but you know I was going to give up on it too easily so I just kept plugging away at it and eventually I found myself a position and applied for it and was accepted. Going into forensics I guess that actually appealed to your journalistic background as well being into investigations and finding out more detail and really being curious about exactly how and why things happened but being in forensics when one of the few women in that area what were the challenges there? One of the biggest challenges was the equipment nothing was the right size for a woman you know the gloves were were all large so all the the gum boots that were supplied were large the the overalls were large you know there was never anything that fitted properly so that was a difficulty from the start and even um, in those days we were in plain clothes like now you'll see them getting around with overalls on with forensic on the back but just finding clothing that was suitable for a woman to look smart and be at work but yet be practical and I think I actually sort of set a trend in fashion for the girls because I found these amazing 
shoes that were lace up, but they looked quite, you know, smart, but yet they were serviceable. So I could actually get in and do an initial investigation with what I was wearing. But then if I needed to get changed into overalls, I could kick them off and change what I was wearing pretty quickly. So it was, skirts were out. (laughs) It wasn't like the crime scene shows where they're wearing high heels and lots of lipstick. It certainly wasn't practical to go dressed into a scene looking like that. So getting into forensics, I mean, that not everybody knows exactly what's involved. So can you tell us a little bit about what a typical day of a forensic investigator would be like? It's a huge discipline. There's so many different areas to forensic. And I think that's why I found it very stressful when I started there because there was only on-the-job training. So I spent about six weeks in the car with a trained investigator just watching what he was doing. And one of the main things that you've got to learn is obviously to use a camera so that you can record everything. But a typical day could mean attending a fatal or serious car accident. So you're out on a road scene, you've got to photograph it, you've got to collect trace evidence, work out the point of impact take measurements so that you can draw a scale plan for court. There's so many areas you need to understand this discipline. Mm. But then on the other hand, you might get called to a murder. So you need to be able to collect, do blood swabs, collect any sort of body fluids that are required, photographing, again, measuring. You might call photogrammetry, which is another area within the scientific discipline where they do three-dimensional photographs the special machine and they can go back and plot that out so that it's all to scale. You might have to go to court and give evidence. You might have to go to the morgue and photograph a post-mortem. If there was a disaster, you would be recalled to duty. All of our investigators were disaster victim identification trained. So, for instance, when I was working a long time ago, some people might remember the Newcastle earthquake. I was recalled to duty to go to Newcastle to photograph the the bodies when they were recovered in situ and do disaster victim identification so that we could work out who these particular people were and then marry that up with the families that were missing a loved one. So there's so many areas, you know, I could go on and on about what the day may entail, but lots and lots of different things. That's one of the things I loved about the job. You never knew what was going to happen from day to day. And so much of it must have been really quite traumatic as well, because you mentioned that there was majority on the job training. So that meant as quite a young lady, you would have been taking on these tasks without a great deal of training. You were learning as you were going. How did you prepare yourself for some of the horrific scenes that you must have come across? Well, uh, there wasn't any time to prepare myself. It all happened so quickly. For instance, when I when I first started to work on call. So I was given a pager and I was on call for seven days, 24 hours a day. I'd do my eight-hour shift and then go home. And if the pager went off or a phone call came in during the evening, I would then go and attend to whatever that incident was. So in my first call-out period, in that one week, I had a triple call-out. At midnight, I was called out to a fatal car accident, investigated that scene. I went home. I got called out at 5 a.m. to a suicide gassing in a car where a young man had killed himself and went out and investigated that and recorded all of that, went home, and then in the afternoon I was still in bed asleep because I'd been up all night. I got called to a murder. And when I got to that murder, I had not investigated anything like that before. I didn't have any formal training. So I asked for help, but the people in my office were at a course in Sydney and were too far away to come and assist me, and they just basically said, get on with it. 
So thankfully, I had a lot of common sense. And that particular scene, the first thing I did was call the local police medical officer to come and just give me some ideas of, well, this particular incident was very horrific and, and it was pretty obvious what the cause of death was because this woman was hacked to death with a machete. But it was just good to have a medical person there that could you know, assist me in what I was doing. So there really wasn't any preparation. I think that was one of the downfalls. As time went on, these incidents just kept accumulating and there was no debrief or any way of you know, sort of resolving how I felt about it or thinking about it. And I think one of the biggest things back then was I was so concerned that I actually was doing the, the job correctly and that I hadn't missed any evidence. And I was more concerned about that. I'd lay, lay awake at night after I'd got home from a call out, hoping that I'd done the job well and that I had not, you know, missed anything. It wasn't sort of for maybe a couple of years that I, once I mastered the job that I started to actually look at what I was dealing with. And that's when the real trauma of it started to take over. To have something like a car accident, a few hours later a suicide, a few hours later a murder to deal with, that's so much emotionally and physically that would be very, very draining for you. So how would you unwind at the end of the day so that you could cope with what you had seen? Well, the problem was when you were on call like that, you were in this adrenaline-fueled state of readiness so that you were on this high alert. And that's what I've realised now, that adrenaline rushing through the body uh, affects the cortisone levels. And you don't understand it at the time, but all of your hormone levels and everything is completely out of whack. I mean, that first call-out period, three days later, when I was still on call, the fellow that had murdered that woman hung himself in the police cells. So we had a death in custody. And I was recalled at 3 a.m. to go and do that as well. And I remember having a lot of anger. I was very angry about this man that had killed this woman because in his suicide note he wrote, if he couldn't have her, nobody would. And yet I had to be professional and I had to put my own emotions aside. So the only real way of coming down from this adrenaline state was to drink alcohol and we were virtually taught how to drink alcohol it was the culture of the time that you just went down the pub had a few drinks with your work colleagues and then that's how you you worked through all these feelings and emotions and of course as years went on that became a huge problem because then you get drinking for dependency to numb out emotions and feelings and of course alcohol is a depressant so it makes you feel worse so that it's a long-term issue that I'm still dealing with. I, you know, I call myself now a problematic drinker because as soon as I feel a little bit of stress, my brain immediately says, I drink, I feel like an alcoholic drink. And I have to say, no, that's not what you're going to do. There's so many other things now that I've learned that I can do, you know, such as meditation and, you know, good, healthy lifestyle habits that I didn't know back then. So, you know, there really wasn't any way of de-stressing other than discussing these issues with your work colleagues and going down to the pub for a drink or drinking at home on your own. Have things changed very much in the police force with regard to the support for people in forensics, for example, so that they are able to cope with everything that goes on on a day-to-day basis? I think things have changed a little bit. There's still a long way to go. Um, We still have forensic police officers working one out on their own often and you know, especially in the country areas where they don't have a lot of support in relation to staff. But there's a lot more awareness now. So, I mean, I often get emails and, and phone calls from forensic officers asking for assistance. What we try and do now is that we try and prepare them, which is what we didn't have, so that they know what they're going to feel and how this is going to affect them and, and 
give themselves some strategies of how to deal with the traumatic nature of the work they're going to be doing. They need a very, very good, strong support network, whether that be family or friend or colleagues. They also need, you know, a good counsellor because often we need to discuss these horrific scenes with someone that can just, that's neutral, that can just help them, you know, desensitise and debrief. You know, it would be good if we could rotate them, but unfortunately it takes a long time to train these specialists now. I mean, there's years ago that we developed a diploma applied science, which I actually worked on and wrote a couple of the subjects. So that diploma takes four years and a lot of them are coming into the force with a science degree now. So they really don't want to let them go. But I, th- I do think that rotation in and out of forensic work is, is a necessity because you can't continue to just keep doing it for year in, year out without a break. So that's something that really needs to be done. And I would expect that giving comprehensive training for family members too, so they know how to support you know, their family member who's in the police force and experiencing quite horrific scenes on a regular basis would be essential. Because someone doesn't know how to act or react when a police officer comes home after having quite a stressful day, I can imagine that emotions would just escalate and there could be all sorts of other problems that occur as well. Oh, definitely. The, the family support is such an important area. And in the work I do with the trauma group, we have a spouse support coordinator that looks after the families and the partners and the parents. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, post-traumatic stress coming out in the children, officers that have suffered. So it's a generational thing. It affects everybody. And it's so important that everyone's educated. And there's a, there's, you know, there's a few good books around. I mean, a friend of mine, Dr. Roger Peters, he writes, has written a book called Police Under Pressure, A Donkey on the Edge. And we have that on our website, on the Police Post Trauma Support Group website, and people can download that for free. And that little booklet is amazing how it describes burnout and compassion fatigue. And it's it allows police and emergency workers to understand how this can happen and how the exposures to the traumas changes one who is constantly exposed and what you can do to, to sort of assist yourself and your family to have resilience and to care for yourself. How many years were you in the police force in total? 17. 17 years, long time. And then in 2001, you were medically discharged with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so how did you cope with that after you left the police force? Well, that was very distressing because I loved my job and I was very passionate about forensic science and police as a you know whole career. And I, when I embarked upon that career, I expected to stay within that career right the way through to retirement. But it became very clear to me that, unfortunately, I'd been indelibly damaged by the exposures that I'd had when I was a young police officer in the early days of forensic work. And the post-traumatic stress was chronic. So I had been doing some courses at St. John of God Hospital and through those courses, I realised that I would need to move away from policing, which was a very sad decision to make. So I was medically discharged. However, way back in 1988, when I first started forensic work, I had written the opening page of my book, Crime Scene. And I knew at that time that there was going to be a story, but I didn't know what the story was. So it had taken so many, many years of my work, my working life, to get to a point where I realised that what that story was. So I decided that as soon as I was medically discharged from the police that I would sit down and write that book. And at first I thought it was going to be a bit of a police yarn, something that would really only appeal to police 
officers themselves, you know, understanding the culture. But as I started writing the book, I realised that it wasn't a yarn at all. It was a very, very serious story about a young woman who had embarked upon this career, who had all these idealistic ideas about, you know, how she was going to make a difference and the things she was going to do and achieve. But how that had become derailed over the years of these exposures to these traumatic scenes and that the people that I'd come across and the families that I'd witnessed in such shocking, distressing times had impacted me and I had ended up taking that completely on board. It was something that needed to be said and it was a very hidden part of police work that I felt needed to be told. And once I started to unravel that story and tell it, I realised how important it was to get it out there. must have been very good for you as well to get it out and get it all in writing so that you could sort of resolve uh, various issues for yourself too. And what about your other book, Forensic Investigator? How did that come about? When when Crime Scene came out, I had uh, the emails just started to flood in from all people of all walks of life, ways in which the story had impacted upon them and their family, their loved ones, their, you know, people that they knew. And a lot of those emails were from colleagues as well that, that I'd worked with. And one of them was a colleague called Jeff Bernasconi. And he wrote to me and said that he was so proud of the fact that I had stood up and spoken about the unspeakable, that he felt that we should all write our stories and that he wanted to get his story out there. And he said he would like to put his hand up for me to write his story. And I was going originally to write a whole series of stories in the one book. So I interviewed a number of former forensic colleagues of mine and all of their stories were absolutely amazing. But when I went and interviewed Jeff, I realised that his story was so complete and so important, I think from a men's point of view of mental health because female women sort of tend to talk about their feelings a little bit more, but men seem to bottle it up. And I felt with Jeff's story, it was not only from a man's perspective, which was going to be a challenge for me to write, but was also about country New South Wales. So it wasn't from a city metropolitan perspective, but from an outlying isolated area where one of the things that came through when he was giving me his story and talking about it was that he often got called to jobs where he knew the people involved, and yet he couldn't stand back or ask to be taken off these particular jobs because there was literally nobody else to do it. So he had to put himself... I mean, I felt that I put my feelings aside in the work that I did, but this brought it to another whole level. So, yeah, that's how Jeff's book came about. Oh, just amazing. I'm so glad that you've written these two books. And you've got another book in the making. Are you uh, happy to talk about what your third book is? Yeah, I've actually got two books that I've part written. One of them is a, well, it's a true, it's a true account of um, some things that happened to me in the police force, and it's very much driven around women's issues and how crime impacts upon women in society. That story, the, the actual essence of it, was very difficult to write as non-fiction because the people that were involved are still around mm-hmm. and are from a very strong crime um, family. So I wanted to write it as fiction, and my publisher, Penguin, at that time, that was my second book before I started on, embarked on Jeff's book. They said that I really needed to write another non-fiction book before I could embark upon changing genre to fiction. So I have, I keep going back to it and it comes up and an incident that it surrounds, which is a story about a woman who actually fakes a pregnancy because she buys a baby through the underworld in Sydney. And when this whole media issues came up with the Kelly Lane story when she had her babies and that the babies disappeared. I really thought, oh, I must write that story. 
I just haven't felt the right urge to get onto it and do it. So recently I've started writing another book, which is a completely different genre altogether. It's nonfiction, but it's about a woman who worked El Caballo Blanco, which was a theme park in Sydney where the Spanish riding horses did daily shows. And I had actually worked there as a rider entertainer before I joined the police force, so I had an intimate knowledge of the whole show business scene and, you know, the equine industry and how, the you know, people worked in that sort of business. And it's about her life. She was in show business too herself when she was younger and was an actor and then became a writer. And she also worked at Notre Dame, which was another well-known theme park in, in Sydney. So it's a story about hers. It's an unusual road for me to move into. It's completely different, but I'm really enjoying the process. And that sounds like a happy time in your life as well, from journalism through to being a, a rider in El Caballo Blanco. And then that's something that's just popped up that we didn't know about earlier in this podcast, Esther. You've kept that secret. <laughs> Before going into the police force, you're, you're a woman of many talents, many, many talents. And now I'm so glad that you're continuing to write more books because your stories must be told. They, they sound absolutely amazing. And can I just ask you about being an author? Because, you know, so many people think they've got a book. I mean, you, I think you've just got so many books in you. What do you find rewarding and what do you find challenging about writing? Well, I think writing is very isolating and it's solitary. And you hear this often by people that are writing books and or, you know, have written books or trying to write. You really have to be completely self-motivated. You have to say to yourself, today I'm going to do 1,000 words and I will not leave the computer until I've finished what I've, what I've set down to do. And that's how I worked. So I found that a huge challenge. Just ha- setting that time aside to feel like every day that book is getting further to the end so that you can complete the project. I mean, when I wrote Crime Scene, it took three years and Forensic, Investiga- Forensic Investigator two years. So it's a big commitment. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges. But then obviously it's a huge challenge to find a publisher. And this is where um, a lot of people find it very difficult. But in my situation, I was very lucky because at that time, my husband who works in shipping was moving a lot of penguin books between Australia and the United States and England. And he had some connections with penguin books. So he was just chatting to someone down there and mentioned that I was writing this story. And they said, oh, you know, that sounds really interesting. Tell her to send us the manuscript. So at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, that was an email that I received from him. So I quickly did a letter, a covering letter and sent off a chapter. And at 10 o'clock by the next morning, I had an offer to publish or to, well, the offer was that they would like to see the whole manuscript because they were very keen to publish it. But I hadn't finished it. I was only up to Chapter 8 at that time. So then I had to continue finishing it before because I was a first-time author. They weren't prepared to take a chance on it. But in that process, it's the editing, which is another challenge, you know, writing, rewriting. And luckily for me, I had my mum who would – I would write a chapter, she'd edit it. I'd rewrite it, she'd edit it. I'd rewrite it again and she'd edit it again so that I was continually polishing and, you know, sharpening up my work as I went along but then I was lucky enough to be given a mentorship through the Australian Society of Authors with a wonderful writer called Gabriel Lord who's our queen of crime writing in Australia and I worked with her so I think having those challenges for me I was very lucky to have 
good assistance and good support. So with Gabriel's assistance to just get through that last polishing up before I sent the whole finished product to Penguin, it was looking so good by that point that obviously had a publishable manuscript ready to go. And I ended up with two offers, Hotter Headline also wanted to publish it. So then I was able to choose which one suited me best. How fantastic. And now you've got these best-selling books under your belt. And I can't wait for the next two books to come out as well, because that's going to be very, very exciting. And now you're the president of the Post-Trauma Support Group in New South Wales, and you're doing very, very important work there. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the support group? The support group started shortly after my first book, Crime Scene, came out. I had quite a lot of emails from police all saying that they felt very isolated and that they'd suffered a similar situation to what I'd talked about in my story. So I called police that I knew that were either serving or retired or in the process of being medically discharged who were suffering from post-traumatic stress and asked if they wanted to meet at the local coffee. And they all turned up. So there was eight of us there and the coffee ended up being lunch and afternoon tea and we stayed there all day. And I realised at that point there was so much to talk about. There was so much support required and there were so many levels to this issue of how police were suffering in silence. So that was how it got started on sort of a more casual basis. But as time went on and more people came on board, I advertised it in the police news and a fellow called Bob Walsh came along who had retired just after 30-odd years of policing and wasn't uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress or anything like that, although clearly, you know, in his career he had suffered a lot. And he was a very strong guiding light to us becoming a registered charity and to applying to New South Wales Police to use the name police and have, and to also gaining support by the commissioner, who was Ken Moroney at the time, who has continued to be a wonderful support with everything that we've done. So that was how it got started, and it's just grown from there. It's just got bigger and bigger, and we have a huge network of people that assist, whether it be through the committee or through our administration or you know, Treasury with funding. We have a chaplain, Gary Raymond, who's a former Chief Inspector of Police, who is now a chaplain with the Salvation Army, and he does all our chaplaincy work and our critical incident care and our suicide prevention. And we have Lisa Doherty, who's our spouse support coordinator, who also looks after the families. So there's so many people working behind the scenes and supporting me as the face of the group. And we are all helping people every single day. We get phone calls, we get emails. You know, we have coffee with people. We go into hospitals. We have another fellow, one of our guys from our Richmond branch, because we set up a number of branches, who he goes into the St. John of God Hospital every Tuesday and looks after our police that are in inpatients. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of things we do advocate to support emergency workers. Oh, just such incredibly important work that this, this group that you've set up does. And I'm really... Honoured to be talking to you about it today as well. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you or with the post-trauma support group for assistance themselves, um, do you have a website that they can go to? We do. It's um, it's at www.pptsg.org.au. I'll put that up on my show notes. So if anyone wants to follow and find out a little bit more about it, uh, they can go directly to it. So it's pptsg.org.au. Yes, and we also have a Facebook page as well. If you look up Esther McKay and then the link post-traumatic stress disorder or police post-trauma support group, you'll come up with the Facebook page and you can message through the private messaging there if there's any issues that we can assist with or you can post something the site if there's any 
strategies or any you know self-help hints that you might feel you'd like to share that's the forum where you get those uh, sort of issues wonderful i'll put that in my show notes as well now esther you are a sought after keynote speaker as well and you speak regularly to government departments and universities schools and the corporate sector on all sorts of things but mainly on mental health women's issues overcoming ptsd etc and everything that you're passionate about can you tell us a little bit about your speaking work the speaking work is something I'm really passionate about because it allows me to reach all different people in different career paths and you know, men, women, children. It's just a really good forum for me to, to talk about my own experiences and the way that things that have come to me in my life and how that's shaped my life and how I've overcome adversities and you know how I've been able to inspire other people by showing that even if you do have a particular career path, you do suffer trauma as I did that you can rise above that and you can make something good come out of that. So there's all sorts of talks I give. I mean, I talk different types of government bodies like corrective services, rural fire, the SES, those type of people, because the work that I did is very relevant to the work that they do. But I also like to talk to uh, women's groups, how women in the work environment can overcome many, many issues and how we've evolved as women in our working careers. Things have changed a lot over the last 10 years. I think they're still changing and I like to look at how society is changing as a whole and how we can put ourselves in in a particular position of being able to overcome those changes and, and move with those changes as well. And, you know, I also like to talk on occupational health and safety. I'm a real campaigner for making sure that people are working in a safe environment. That was one of the issues that I had in my working life, especially in forensics. I was exposed to a lot of chemicals, a lot of body fluids. There was, you know, all sorts of carcinogenics that were at fire scenes when I was investigating arsons. You know, there was difficulties at road scenes. And as I mentioned before, the equipment was inadequate. So I'm very big on talking about OH&S and I like to talk to corporate companies about what strategies they've got in place and how their staff can be better cared for and looked after, not only with their mental health, but their physical health and their environment. So that's another that I really love to talk about. There's so much that we could all learn from you, Esther. And you know, yesterday was the International Women's Day. And I was just thinking as you were talking about the women's issues that need to be tackled, there's so much that needs to be done for women in the workplace, you know, whether it's in the corporate sector, in the private sector, or anywhere, that I'm sure that you could provide a lot of great insights to. So with your speaking career i know that you're with a speaking bureau um it's called speaking out is that correct that's right yeah so we can find you at speakingout.com.au yeah i mean honestly just to have you come and speak to a group of women i'm going to recommend you absolutely everywhere (laughs) (laughs) thank you so so inspiring. Now, Esther, it's been so interesting talking about your career path and everything that you've done from riding horses and El Caballo Blanco, which is not in my bio, so sneaky W, <laughs> being a journalist and then getting into the police force, specialising in forensics, leaving, going through a lot of mental trauma yourself. And then out of that was born two best-selling books. And now you've got your life as a in-demand keynote speaker 
as well. There's so many strings to your bow and what a rich life, even though they've obviously been good times as well as very, very challenging and um, quite stressful times for you. It's made you just the amazing woman that you are today. And now you're the patron of the Missing Persons Register too. And having been an Australia Day ambassador, you're a treasure for Australia. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to have to have you back on again. I want you back on if you wouldn't mind and you'd, you'd be happy to come on again to talk about your next two books because both of them will be really really interesting i'm going to have all of your links to reach you on my show notes so if you're looking to find esther it's esthermckay.com and then there's speakingout.com.au if you want esther as a speaker if you're interested to find out more about the police post trauma support group it's pptsg org.au and I'll have all of these in my show notes in janejacksoncoach.com as well so would you be happy to come on again one day Esther? I'd love to thank you very much. You know that means that you just need to get those books finished. (laughs) (laughs) That's right I'll have to get my commitment of thousand words a day back up and running. (laughs) Actually what was interesting was when I I wrote a careers book nothing is really traumatic as the books that you've already published but I set myself a goal of 1000 words a day so I had a 30,000 word challenge in a month and actually it was really good having that because when you have a goal and you know it's you know in little bite-sized pieces and it's actually achievable it's great but writing a book you get to the phase where you think why am I even doing this <laughs> oh absolutely I can identify with that it's, well Gabriel Lord always says that it's like a birth it's like a pregnancy you go right the way through and and then at the end you get something beautiful to hold so yes, or, else, yeah. <laughs> or else you just fling it out in the, into the world and say there you go do with it what you will <laughs> How fantastic. Well, it's been my pleasure to have you on the show today, Esther. Thank you so much for coming on. And we will have you back very, very soon. Thank you, Jane. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. There are over 180,000 book titles to choose, so give it a go and get your free audiobook today from audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. You've been listening to Jane Jackson Careers. Sign up to receive regular career advice at janejacksoncoach.com. Thanks for joining me today. For affordable career help, please check out my career success program. I provide a unique blend of online and live career coaching to help you take control of every aspect of your career or career change. If you aren't aware where you want to be in your career, let's talk. Check it out at thecareersacademy.online. The links are in my show notes.